Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Jess Jacobs, and she is an award-winning actress, a writer, producer, philanthropist, an activist who really focuses on storytelling to advance femme and our experiences towards equity and justice. And Jess has been, from a very early age, an incredible advocate, especially around abortion, and she's going to tell us her own story of having an abortion and really what she did with that experience. My darling, Jess Jacobs, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. It's so good to see you. You know, we, we started off saying that it feels like ages and I've talked to you for five minutes and it just feels like yesterday now. I know. I know. It's like no time has passed at all. <laughs> no time has passed. And I was thinking before, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was trying to think about the first day that we met. And from what I recall, it was at the Chamber of Commerce. And I met you for like five seconds. And then I dragged you over to Deborah Messing. And I was like, she's an actress. You're an actress. Why don't you meet each other? <laughs> did I dream that? Or did that really happen? You were on a panel with Deborah about impact bombs. And I have okay. to tell you, like, I was totally enraptured and I could tell you zero things about impact bombs to this day. Uh -huh. But I remember thinking that both you and Deborah were just like these absolutely brilliant storytellers, like so captivating. Again, I was like, I don't really know what they're talking about, but I, I want to listen. <laughs> and so, yeah, afterwards, just getting to talk to, to both of you, it was a lovely little moment. And all of a sudden I was like, I'm interested. <laughs> I, I, I think I said to you, okay, you're gorgeous. I think I need to know you because of course <laughs> you walk in a room and you're so strong and gorgeous and have incredible presence. Thanks, so I was Kate. like, yeah, I think I need to know you. So that progressed the next quickly. time. I think quickly. We had, yeah, breakfast at like 7 a.m. the next morning or something. Yeah. <laughs> then we had breakfast. But then I remember gathering for a Jeffersonian dinner in New York. And I think it was something like a week after that president was elected. And, mm -hmm. and then I believe there was a women's march very soon after that. And he signed the gag rule, right? The gag order, as they call it, to ban reproductive rights and abortion. And I remember being at that dinner and so many, so many of you guys became Maverick Collective members, which was amazing. I believe you're one of the early ones. And with this feeling of, I have got to do something about women's rights. <laughs> and that's where our journey kind of began, right? Yeah. I've worked in the entertainment industry since I was 15. And I remember after he was elected, I kind of like sat with myself and was like, okay, what is my long-term contribution to this? Because something is seriously wrong here. Like, you know, the ways in which the United States has been built on very faulty systems, or maybe they're working exactly as they were designed, but deeply inequitable. And we know that, you know that if you pay attention, but to actually see the monster win against the hero and calling Hillary Clinton a hero, I, I love her. She's amazing. She has her flaws. So, so not to say that she's a perfect person, but to see that happen 
it's so disturbing. It's so destabilizing. And so, you know, I think there was, there was a moment at which I was like, do I throw this career away and turn and face 100% towards, towards women's rights work and towards gender justice work. And, and then I think the most exciting thing, and, and part of it was what happened at that dinner was realizing that storytelling and media and content and art meeting with social justice movement is really where the magic happens. Yeah. Now, one of the things that we always do at these Jeffersonian dinners is we go around the room and it's a one table discussion and we all share something about ourselves that nobody knows about. And you decided to share, I think for one of the first times openly, that you'd had an abortion when you were 19 years old. And you know, you could have heard a pin drop in the room and you were just so vulnerable and so open and so honest. And that was the moment that this sort of journey began for you where you really became an incredible, effective advocate and activist for women's rights, specifically sexual reproductive health. Let's take you back to when you were 19. What happened? Well, I will start by saying that that dinner was literally the first time that I had told I mean, definitely told a group of strangers, but told almost anyone. And the prompt was, you know, share something that nobody knows about you. My first thought was, I had an abortion. My second thought was, don't tell anybody that. And my third thought was, now you have to. And I did, and I, I hadn't told my parents. I had told two friends because I, you have to get picked up from the, the clinic, and, and that was it. And now, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know that I've had an abortion. Here's the situation. I was on birth control. I was taking the pill and nobody ever really instilled in me the dignity of understanding what the pill was actually about. First of all, I started taking it when I was 14 years old for my skin. So it was never really a conversation about being ready to have sex, wanting to have sex, you know, how birth control protects against pregnancy. So when I started having sex at 16, it was sort of like, I've always been taking this pill. There was nothing new for me. I knew what it did and, and that was it. And I think we used condoms too. Anyway, I had a big love, uh, you know, sort of a, a high school love who, who sort of, which followed into college and we were sleeping together regularly and were monogamous and I was on birth control and all was right and, and well. And then I, at some point remembered, or I guess realized that I hadn't had a period in a little while. And that was sort of strange. And I kind of let it sit. And then at some point realized that I should probably do something about that. I went to the Dwayne Reed across the street, the one on, I was living near NYU, which is where I went to college. Um, and I walked into that Dwayne Reed and I bought a pregnancy test, which I had done one time before for a friend who was in, in high school who was too afraid to buy it herself. And so I just walked in there, pretended that I was buying it for a friend, went into my bathroom and I peed on that stick. And I remember distinctly sitting on the floor with my, I didn't even pull my pants up. I just like moved from the toilet seat to the floor and just sat and waited and watched this plus sign come up. And the feeling that I had in that moment was a very interesting, almost paradoxical feeling. It was both that I was this kind of magical creature who could create life. I think the real kind of fundamental understanding that that is possible and that that's just this incredible thing. And also that I was just like everybody else. It was like, oh, just because I don't want to be pregnant doesn't mean I don't become pregnant necessarily. And it was this kind of like, I'm this unicorn amongst a sea of unicorns, you know? And so I'm pretty sure like still with 
with my pants around my ankles sitting on the floor, picked up my phone and called the Planned Parenthood that is nearby on Bleecker. And I think I whispered into the phone that I was pregnant and I, and I wanted an abortion. To be honest, I don't even remember how I knew what an abortion was. Like we didn't talk about it growing up. I just, it may be through some media or something. And I made this appointment. I, they told me that I needed to bring somebody with me. I couldn't leave alone. So I told my best friend, she thought I was kidding. And uh, we were, again, like all these memories are like so vivid in my head. I could just like paint the picture. She ended up having to go to work. So I told another friend, she went with me, brought me home afterwards. And I had a medication abortion. I was eight weeks along. I did an ultrasound. I didn't look at it. You're not obligated to in the state of New York. And in the state of New York, there's no waiting period. So I was able to go for my appointment and get the care that I needed that day. Basically, the decision was between having a DNR, which is in lay people terms, like a surgical abortion and in-clinic abortion, or a medication abortion in which I got to take some pills and go home. And I was like, I want to go home. I want to get out of here. And that was not because they weren't treating me well. It's because the stigma of this experience was so overwhelming. I didn't think I knew anybody who had been through something like this. In fact, there were friends of mine, I was I was 19, friends of mine who were turning 20, posting Facebook status updates, if you remember those, saying things like avoided teenage, like just turned 20, avoided teenage pregnancy. Like, yeah, it's just was such a state. There was such a state. Yeah. I mean, I remember my mother finding my birth control pills in my purse when I was 17 and creating this fear of God in me. She was Roman Catholic. And it's like our parents have such an obligation <laughs> to talk to us about these things factually with no scare tactics, right? Because that leads to this horrible stigma and discrimination and taboos surrounding, you know, getting an abortion. And by the way, very interesting, you didn't tell me this bit that even going into a pharmacy as a 19-year-old girl, you felt that you need to do explain to the sales assistant that you were doing this for a friend. I mean, that's really quite extraordinary. And also that you made the decision the immediate time that you saw that you were pregnant. Did you not think to talk to your boyfriend at the time about it? I love that question. There are so many different nuanced ways to think about decision making around abortion and all of the different ways in which the input of people around a pregnant person impacts their decision. And I was so clear. It was not a question. The choice itself was not hard to make. It was not a question in my mind whether or not I was going to bring this pregnancy to term. And so for that reason, I was like, there's nobody to consult. There's nobody to ask for permission or anything because this choice is mine and it, it does belong to me. And I think like the way in which the rhetoric is positioned about this issue it is so dehumanizing because it strips the pregnant person of this fundamental right because you know. And if you don't know, you know you don't know and you know you, you need to know. Like there's just no role for anybody else in that process. If the pregnant person does not want to be pregnant, they should not be pregnant. The end. Now, I'm curious as to, if you can cast your mind back, how the experience was in the clinic. And when you went in there, you were obviously completely traumatized, right? You're this 19-year-old girl and, you know, you're going to the unknown. Were you treated well? 
did you feel like you got the right counseling and help and referrals maybe? Like, did they go through all that with you? What happens really when you're in that clinic? Because that's got to be terrifying. So I will say two things. One of them is that I love Planned Parenthood. The work that they do is essential. It is amazing. They, along with all of these incredible, you know, independent clinics, everybody should check out the Keep Our Clinics campaign. In addition to Planned Parenthood, they are just like the lifeblood of sexual health. The other pieces that I just, I can't remember. I think I was so scared and so ashamed that I blocked a lot of it out. I remember them being like perfectly kind. It wasn't like there was any cruelty. And again, like I've, ta- I've spoken now to a number of, as I, from the advocacy that I do, I've spoken to a number of clinicians and patients in states across the country. And that is not always the case. Not that people are ever cruel, but that there are cultural differences in different places, their expectations, you know, these things do happen. In the clinic that I went to, I had a very kind experience. I think I just wanted to get out of there. I just wanted to get out of there. So when they, again, they told me that I could take these pills, I took them and I, and I ran. I'm sure that they gave me information. I just did not remember it. And what I did not feel prepared for, and this is a little bit graphic, so a slight, I guess, trigger warning, but was the amount of blood. I was covered in blood. How quickly after taking the pills did that happen? So basically the way that a medication abortion works is that you put a couple of pills in your cheek when you're there, and then you go home and you take the rest of them like 24 hours later. And so once you take the pills, I think I took a nap. They give you anti-nausea and pain medication as well. So I took both of those with the meso. And I think that it was probably like four hours. I don't, four to six, I don't totally remember. And I don't want to be medically inaccurate here, but I woke up in a pool of blood and I had had a big old pad on, you know, they tell you to get these, you know, jumbo size pads and all of that. And I just was like, Oh, it's like a little, you know, it's a little wet down there. And I like pull my covers off. And I, I mean, it looks like, again, these memories are just like seared in my brain, looking down and seeing yourself covered in blood is just like not a sight you really want to see. And so I was unprepared for that. And I was unprepared for how much it hurt. Some people have really pretty like fairly mild experiences and mine was very painful. And so there were certain elements of, for which I was unprepared. And, and I've spent a lot of time talking to different groups and different folks about kind of what emotional support and preparedness looks like for medication abortion and for self-managed abortion. You know, cause the biggest question there is sort of the biggest question in, in some of these like apps that are being created to, to walk people through medication abortions. The biggest question that gets asked is, is this normal? And somebody just being able to say, yes, it's normal, gives a patient peace of mind. And I just didn't know who to ask. I didn't know who to call. Even I, like, I didn't think to call the Planned Parenthood receptionist. Like I didn't, again, and, and part of that is shame and stigma. And part of that was just not having the resources readily available. And I'm sure you think about how lucky you are to have been born here in the United States, because as we know, you know, you and I have traveled extensively meeting women and girls around the world who have not been able to get their hands on medical abortion and have tried to perform it themselves, you know, using whatever tools and herbs and things that they can find, which, of course, we would never, ever advocate for 
we need to get medical abortion and clinical abortion available so it's safe. So what you're saying, Jess, is you were able to have a safe abortion in your own home. It was unpleasant. You got through it. How did it leave you feeling short term and long term? Yeah. So I will, I'll respond to, I think I, I did feel exceptionally lucky to be in a place where my abortion clinic was like three and a half blocks away from me. It was so close. Being in the United States does not always mean that you have an abortion clinic accessible to you. Certainly not now. Right. And now we have, yeah, now jobs. But even during Roe, even when abortion was the law of the land, access was a problem for so many people. 96% of counties in this country do not have an abortion clinic in them. That is an exceptional statistic. That means that it was legal, but it was not accessible. And so I was very lucky for that accessibility. And I felt very lucky for that accessibility. I will also say there are a number of countries around the world where there has been heavy stigmatization of abortion and many where that stigma remains, many where that where incredible grassroots organizing has shifted that landscape. The obvious ones are Ireland, Argentina, Colombia, or Mexico. Which are amazing because they're Roman Catholic countries. They're Catholic countries. Well, and we can have a whole other conversation about the role of religion in the abortion access and abortion justice conversation and how fabricated so much of this is. As a Jewish person who wrote a paper in college about abortion for my Jewish ethics class, Jews have a very interesting relationship to, to abortion, but for another podcast and another time. So I will say like the United States is, is not, I no longer feel that abortion is, I mean, it's definitely not safe here in many ways. If people can't get their hands on pills, I highly recommend checking out plancpills.org if you are in need of uh, an abortion and you are not in a setting where one is accessible to you. Um, they have a lot of incredible resources so that you can self-manage your abortion at home, very discreet, very private. All of that being said, the United States has a lot to learn from a lot of other countries around the world at this, at this point, and I hope that we have the, the humility to do so. How did it leave me feeling? In the short term, I mean, at this point, I think it's, I've made very clear that I, I was really ashamed. So I just hid it away. I just put it in some little box. I think like I went back to classes like the next day and my friend, we actually were talking about this recently. She was like, I remember thinking like, are you okay? You want to, you want to go to class today? Like you were sitting on the, on the toilet sobbing yesterday. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Um, I just didn't want to deal with it. And this dinner that you hosted where I told this story and the first time that I told it and I realized how powerful the storytelling could be for others because there was another person at that table who came up to me and told me that they had also had an abortion. I realized like, oh my God, I know somebody who has had an abortion. But for me, for me, the storytelling was so healing. Isn't it amazing? I immeasurably so. Yeah. I was talking to some uh, high school students this morning as part of the Body Next campaign to try to get them to do testimonials like this about issues affecting their bodies. Two of the girls in the class came up to me separately and basically shared, because I had shared that I had, had an eating disorder, and I shared it very openly. And it, it feels good 
you know, saying it. It feels good, right? Because you're only as sick as your secrets. You are only as sick as your secrets. And, you know, they both came up and said, I haven't told anybody, but I also, you know, have this eating disorder. And I could see the relief on their faces where it was like, finally, there's somebody I can tell this to, you know, and then they were like, well, what kind was yours? And, you know, let me share what I do. And, you know, it was very interesting. But the shame, I think the combination of the shame around, you know, anything like this, having an abortion, having an eating disorder, being sexually dysfunctional, like whatever it may be, it's about being able to overcome that shame, find the resources that you need, right? to get healthy or to solve the problem, right? And as you say, access, 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 and then being able to tell the story to help others is so powerful. And I'll tell you too, like eventually I told my mom fairly shortly after that, we were sitting for dinner and having some conversation and I, and I blurted it out now that it was kind of out there. I felt like I was able to share that with her that I had that I had been pregnant before that I had had an abortion and I don't know what I was expecting from her but I definitely didn't think that she was going to say me too which is what she said wow she said I had one too how old was she I think she was 16 wow and that was a long time ago right mhm mhm but I mean she wasn't walking around telling people she was holding the stigma and shame And it was this moment where I realized like her shame is my shame, is the shame that is silencing all of us. And again, the statistic is one in four American women will have an abortion in their lifetimes. That means if you're sitting at a table of four women, one of those women has had an abortion. That's a a wild statistic. So we are very powerful. Yeah, it's the same statistic as eating disorders. One in four girls will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. And here's how I feel. I'm going to make this clear. My feeling about abortion is not that I want fewer of them and not that I want more of them. I want however many people who want to have abortions to be able to have abortions. And so whether that becomes four and four, you know, whether every single person in this country ends up having an abortion because they want one, I think self-determination is the core value for me in terms of my relationship to abortion, abortion access, and abortion justice. And also that people are having abortions because they are choosing not to have a child, not because they are afraid that they can't you know, feed that child. They want a child, but they can't afford it. That's not justice. That is coercion to some degree. And so, you know, the fight is really for that. Not to mention that abortion is healthcare and unsafe abortion will end your life. So there's that, right? When we talk about human rights. Jess, I remember after that dinner talking to you privately, and I remember grabbing hold of you and saying, you are so brave. You are so brave to have told your story, your truth. And I remember saying to you, this is going to change your life. And I hope you're ready for that journey. And you said, I am, I am, I'm ready. I'm ready. You went on, you were already a successful storyteller, filmmaker, actress, producer, but you went on to become a philanthropist, which we helped you with the Maverick Collective platform. You started to travel around the world to see your projects and to meet with people and around this notion of sexual reproductive health and rights and telling those stories. And then more recently, you have 
made a film which is about to go to Sundance. Tell us about that film and why you decided to do that. So I want to tell one quick story from Cote d'Ivoire because I think it speaks to some of these things that we're, that we're talking about. We were in Yamasukuro, I think, which is a peri-urban sort of area right outside of Abidjan, the capital. And we were sitting with this group of young women, many of them who had kids, already. And they were talking about birth control. I was not doing any education. I'm certainly not qualified for that. But I was listening in and they were having a conversation about how birth control works. And one of the kind of rumors that is that goes around in, in Abidjan is that if you drink coffee mixed with Coca-Cola, it will it will stop your pregnancy. It'll make it so that you don't get pregnant. It'll wash away basically like the sperm. Wow. I haven't heard that one before. You know, I'm sure that a couple of people did it a couple of times and they weren't, you know, at the part of their cycle where they could get pregnant and they were like, this worked. But the the medical professional that was there said to them, no, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't work. And they were like, okay, well, you tell me to eat this pill or you tell me to get a shot in my arm and it makes me not get pregnant. Like, what's the difference between eating a pill and drinking Coke? Like, I don't understand. And it was this like really sincere moment of being like, oh, this is not, again, this is not about telling people what to do. It is about imbuing folks with dignity through education, through whatever, so that they, and it was the same thing with me with my pills, right? It was like, I took the pill whenever I took it. Like nobody ever said, if you don't take it at the same time every day, here's how your hormones interact. Like there is a way in which dignity of information really impacts one's ability to make choices about one's own life. And also, I mean, in terms of like an international context, like to share this information, to make services available. And and can I quickly ask you, when you started on this Maverick project in Cote d'Ivoire, you became a quite a significant philanthropist. You joined a community of, of other philanthropists and you got your own project, which was based in Cote d'Ivoire. What did you learn on that journey about yourself? And what was one of the key things you learned about the issue that you were working on? Mm. Okay, I'm going to give you the real answer. The real answer to that question is that I learned that the amount of power that I hold is almost non-transferable. As a white, wealthy American, it is almost impossible. It's funny. I was talking to Marshall Stoll the other day. He's a former PSIer. And he reminded me of this story. We were sitting around a table. I've got, I don't even remember where. And I think I'd asked at some point, I speak some French and I said, you know, but not like, I'm not super fluent. And so I was like, if I kind of, if I speak French with them, you know, do you think that that will help? Like for me, I just wanted to like get rid of some of this power. I was like, I don't want to hold this kind of power. And somebody looked at me and said, you are a white, wealthy American. There is nothing you can do. And so I think the journey, and it's a journey I am very much still on and I'm very much still kind of parsing my way through is what is a way to hold power responsibly? And what is a way to envision a world in which people have power with others instead of over others? That equity is something that is always going to be a balancing act. We are never going to achieve utopia. I guess never say never, but it seems just by human nature so unlikely. But to be able to say like, you know, there's so much talk about like, I'm giving my power up. I'm sharing my power, but it's really hard to do that. So many of these sexism and racism and classism, I mean, they're just so ingrained 
And so it's, we all have to do this individual work to dismantle it. And I think that's painful and, and powerful and essential. And then the kind of social and societal piece of all of this is to be able to envision a world that is, in my opinion, it's more feminist, it's more horizontal and less vertical. And so, you know, I think when I do this philanthropy work, that is where my focus is. It's redistributing resources with no expectations associated, relationships when and where they are appropriate, but never expected. And it's money with no strings attached because otherwise it just ends up being another industrial complex in which, yeah, I mean, I, again, it could be a whole other podcast. I could talk about it all day. Well, I think we actually have to do this podcast because I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And I actually just did a course through the World Economic Forum at the University of Virginia on systemic racism. You know, you know my life. I've spent my whole life as an activist and uh, working in, in healthcare around the world in 50, 60 different countries. And I did this course and the words white privilege just kept banging in my head when I thought about my own journey of, and I don't have the resources that you have, but I'm still extraordinarily privileged to be who I am, born where I was, white, not having to worry about Am I going to be pulled over by the cops and arrested, you know? And so I really appreciate you saying that. And you've obviously put a lot of thought into it. And, you know, I've seen some very bad things from philanthropists who, you know, travel to these countries and, you know, hold the African babies and take the selfies. And it is a whole different topic, which... We need to clearly articulate because I don't think people do that on purpose, right? It's unexamined and it's undignified is what it is. It's undignified. So I, I truly, truly love those words, Jess. And, you know, thank you for voicing them. And a lot of that education comes from from Black women, I will say, you know, I'm not the divisor of, of these ideas, but I've been very privileged to learn from these folks I think it moves me into like this thinking about storytelling and thinking about the ways in which narratives have been told. Because I think, again, it's right. You're like, I can't blame them. It is the narratives that we tell in this, in this country, the narratives that we tell in Hollywood, which get exported also all around the world. And so, you know, so much of my activism will continue to be disrupting those narratives will be to be telling stories slightly differently about pregnancy, about abortion, about women, about, you know, families. And I will speak only for myself and, and my, you know, my colleagues where I have their consent and, and know that it's a big collective job. You know, this is people power that changes these kinds of norms and these kinds of status quos and in Hollywood, especially. Just tell us the name of your film, because we are sadly out of time. Can you believe it? Can you believe we've done a whole podcast? I mean, it's just flown by. We could do this all day. All day. (laughs) Tell us about the film and what it's all about and why you did it. So there are two films that are sort of on the subject. One of them is a a short entitled Choices, and we have just gotten distribution with Amaletto. So that will be releasing in January. And it is the story of a young person who finds herself pregnant unexpectedly, and she makes both choices. She chooses both to terminate her pregnancy and to bring her pregnancy to term. And we follow her in the 24 hours between her first clinic appointment and her 
her abortion appointment or her first prenatal appointment. It's a narrative film. I wrote it. My director is the most wonderful woman, Erica Rose, and I star in it opposite Paige Gilbert and Alicia Rainier, who's, if you don't know, um, Alicia's activism as well is just absolutely incredible. So that film will be coming out in January. It means the whole entire world to me. And there may be some future iterations of it. Stay tuned. And then hot off the press, I am the executive producer of a really beautiful documentary from Tracy Tragos, who also is behind HBO's Abortion Stories Women Tell, which is a fabulous documentary about abortion storytelling if you if you haven't seen it. Tracy has been following a network of providers, patients, and activists in the self-managed abortion movement since 2018. This film focuses primarily on Plan C, which is an organization that I mentioned earlier in the call. And we are so thrilled to be having our premiere at Sundance in January of 2023, the day after what would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Oh, so 50 years, 50 years gone back. Jess, I'm so proud of you. All this work has been so amazing. You are amazing. And you know what? You always strike me as so humble and sweet. And, you know, doing this work with the humility that you do, and you've always been this way, it's just really amazing because you, you could have been a, a total asshole. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask my husband, he'll tell you that sometimes I'm a total asshole. But <laughs> And, you know, I also want to say thank you for trusting me with your truth, with your story, with your philanthropy. It warms my heart to see now this community that we've built and how you're all interacting with each other and how you're doing these projects together. And, you know, it's it really is just the power of women supporting women. So thank you for trusting me and being my friend. My life is better because you're in it. Kate, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for those words. And thank you for having me. This has been just an easy, breezy joy, um, even talking about, you know, sort of some of the hard stuff. So thank you for making such safe space. You are easy, breezy joy, my dear. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Bye, Kate. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.